The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is July 18th, 2018, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Colonel Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. The USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College sponsor the Perspective Series to provide a historical dimension to the exercise of generalship, strategic leadership, and the warfighting institutions of land power. In addition, we like, would like to thank, uh, or like to extend a warm thank you to the Army Heritage Center Foundation for their support in everything we do here at the AHEC. The book for today's lecture, as you saw, is on sale in the gift shop and behind the lecture hall. All proceeds from the book sales go to support the Army Heritage Center Foundation uh, and uh, everything, all the hard work they do. Uh, we will, of course, as always, have a book signing after the lecture. Which brings me to my favorite part of the night. It is my great honor to introduce tonight's speaker. Mr. Frank Lavin is the CEO and founder of the e-commerce firm Export Now. He earned a BS from the School of Foreign Service uh, in Georgetown, an MS in Chinese Language and History at Georgetown, an MA in International Relations and International Economics from the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins, and an MBA in Finance at Wharton School in Pennsylvania. Working for the U.S. government, uh, Mr. Lavin served as the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Singapore from 2001 to 2005, and as the Undersecretary for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce for, from 2005 to 2007. Previously, Mr. Lavin served in the George H.W. Bush and Reagan administrations, working in the Department of Commerce, the Department of State, the National Security Council, and the White House. Mr. Lavin served as director of the White House Office of Political Affairs from 1987 to 1989, and he is currently a columnist for Forbes.com and is published in the New York Times, the, Wall Street, or the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, and many, many other periodicals. Ladies and gentlemen, please give me, help me give a warm welcome to Mr. Frank Lavin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Carl. That was a very uh, gracious uh, invitation. Thank you so much for coming here today, and uh, hope we'll have a good uh, chance to have a good conversation after I uh, present a few uh, opening points. Uh, thank you, Colonel, for your hospitality. We just had a wonderful uh, dinner and compared notes on uh, military leadership and history and archival activity. And let me just say this before I start comments. If, if you have not yet had a chance to go through this wonderful center, you need to do that. Uh, at both the museum side of it, and there's also a extraordinary archival slash library capability here. So if you've got one particular uh, battle or bit of history or military unit that you're trying to develop a better understanding about, this is the place to come. So I think you're very, very lucky if you're from the greater Carlisle area, you're very lucky to have this resource and this strength here, and please take full advantage of it if you're here. Uh, let me, let me offer a few thoughts uh, about the time and then about the book. I want to take you into the book, but I want to put it in context first uh, and, then, and then maybe read two or three things from the book. Uh, what I want to do is take you back to 1944. And D-Day is a success, and it defines Allied operation going forward that year. And the rest of the year is moving along very nicely as well. And by the time you get to November, December, the Allies are at the German border. And in fact, one or two spots even cross the German border, but they're at the Siegfried Line where uh, Nazi Germany has its final defensive position. So as you look at literature and correspondence and public statements in October, November, December, <coughs> you have people saying Berlin by Christmas or we'll be home by Christmas and so forth. And it's a bit ambitious, but it's not completely unrealistic. 
also of note, the military is really at the end of its logistics trail. Uh, it's been such an aggressive movement across France uh, that even keeping up with that forward position is tough. The harbors have not been uh, reconstituted yet. The supply chain is not there yet, but things are okay. So this is where the Battle of the Bulge begins, and this is the centerpiece of the book. Uh, there's three things I want to tell you about the Battle of the Bulge. First is the audacity of Hitler's plans. Hitler is going to smash through the American lines all the way to the coast, all the way to the English Channel. He's going to hit Antwerp, and he's going to split the Allies in half. Right? So that's a heck of a plan. This is his final offensive on the Western Front for the war. We don't know that at the time, but it turns out to be such. Hitler believes he has two weeks running room. He has a week before the Allies figure out just how massive this assault is, and he has a week before Eisenhower can coordinate with Churchill and Roosevelt and decide what to do about it. Because he knows the preponderance of forces on the Allies' side. But if he has two weeks running room, he can make this happen. He can do it. And we would say this is not likely to happen. This is, this is overly ambitious plan. But what drives Hitler? I mean, this is a bit of conjecture here, but one thing that's got to drive him is guess what? He did it once before. This is what he did in 1940. It does work. You can make it happen. So even though the British, French, and Polish army in 1940 was greater than the German army, if you strike, if you marshal, if you have the advantage of surprise, you can prevail. So he's seen it work, and then he saw it work one other time, or saw it take place one other time when it didn't work, I should say. That was in 1914 when he's a corporal in the Austrian army, and he sees the uh, offensive grind to a halt, the Battle of the Marne. So, so he knows it can work, and he knows it can fail. So he's going to try it a third time, but it's going to work. He has marshaled 400,000 Wehrmacht soldiers that are facing a very thinly defended line of about 200,000 USGI. So he's got a very nice advantage in numbers. So the first point is the audacity of the plan. Second point is the scale. This was and remains the largest battle ever fought by the United States. I mentioned we started with 200,000 people, as we started with, we ended up with one million GIs in this battle. Now the US military at its peak in World War II, both Pacific Theater and Atlantic Theater, had only about eight million people. So we've got one eighth of our entire force structure committed to this one battle. And for the European theater, it's a much higher percentage, of course. Right? So it is a massive undertaking. 400,000 GIs in combat, 600,000 men supporting them. So, so it is a large-scale undertaking. And the third point I want to leave you with is the brutality of this. I, I mentioned that it was Hitler's final offensive. They knew the stakes were very high. What we see as the war, as this battle breaks out, we see that people are already fatigued. People have already been grinding at the terrible draining activity of infantry combat for months and months and months. So people are fatigued. Germany knows that it's all going to be over for them unless they have some alternative plan. And we see in the course of this battle a sharp deterioration in law of war. And most famously from an American perspective, the Battle of the Bulge breaks out uh, December 16th. Most famously from American perspective is December 17th, there's a group of American forward artillery spotters, and as you would gather by their profession, these are lightly armed, they're not supposed to engage in combat, they're supposed to go up front of the lines to help the artillery uh, units direct target, right? So they're spotters, they're supposed to be keep quiet and keep out of the battle, and indeed, they're trained that if something bad's coming, you guys pull back. Well, they are marshaled to be deployed, and they're captured. They're captured regular Wehrmacht troops, but within hours, a Gestapo detachment shows up in a town uh, in Belgium that people here might have heard of. It's a town of Malmedy. And the Gestapo opens up machine gun fire. Kills about 100 GIs. 
Uh, we know we know this the same day. We know this the same day it happens because there's a few folks who can hide in the snow and there are two or three at the back of this group that can run into the woods. So we know right away that the Germans are killing US POWs, so watch out. So you can see the conduct on both sides deterring very, very rapidly. There's other elements that accelerate this deterioration as well. You might, and I, I want to get to the book, but you might have heard of Operation Greif. And it's in all the, all the movies on the Battle of Bulge, which we'll talk about Operation Greif. It involved about 3,000 Wehrmacht soldiers who had one distinctive attribute. They could all speak pretty good colloquial English. So these 3,000 German soldiers were fitted out in fake U.S. uniforms and captured U.S. equipment and sent in uh, to American lines. And they had reasonable effect, some minor missions, some minor success, but more than the particular military mission, the, the effect on morale and communications uh, was, was powerful across the entire front because then you don't know who are you talking with. Who are you working with? Are you working with a GI or are you working with an infiltrator? So it took a while for the US to come to terms with this. So you had situations where a group of GIs are returning from patrol with a group of captured German prisoners and they're waved back into American lines. Those weren't GIs on patrol. They were commandos in, in fake uniforms and the POWs weren't POWs. And the American positions wiped out. So it doesn't take many of those kind of incidents to say, uh, these folks aren't playing by the rules and we're not going to play by the rules either. So into this big scale story uh, enters the protagonist of the book, Carl Lavin, my father, who is a GI. And Carl's a high school senior in Ohio when Pearl Harbor's attacked. He signs up when he, in 1942 when he uh, turns 18. He's assigned to infantry. He's assigned to be a barman, the Browning automatic rifle. He's a barman because, uh, not because of marksmanship, although he obviously qualifies, but he's a barman because bar's a heavier gun, and he's six foot two, and they just say the big guy in each rifle squad gets the bar, and that's how we do our selection and our allocation of military specialty, because uh, it's, uh, it it's a little bit heavier, and then you've got a special ammo pack that's a little heavier. So uh, that's what he gets. And he uh, uh, is in various training assignments in the US as you get through 42 and 43. In 44, he's in Britain, but with a division, uh, that, uh, the 69th Division. And he is stripped out on Christmas Day, 1944, and sent to the front. So lunch in Southampton, dinner at the front. And the United States did something a little different uh, considerably different than any other uh, military did, allied or, or adversary, which is the United States replaced casualties one by one, whereas other, all other military units, foes and friends, would say, look, if, if the unit's ground down, we'll take the unit off the line, we'll reconstitute it, we'll add people, we'll give them some on our, some training to get them together, then we'll redeploy them. The U.S. did not do that and would just put people in individually. So he is put in as an individual replacement with his bar to replace person on Christmas Day, and he fights through uh, the final, the Battle of the Bulge, the Battle of the Roar, the Battle of the Rhine, all the way to the Elbe, VE Day, and occupation. And so this book is his story from basic training from Pearl Harbor uh, basically to the end. And it's a story I suspect many people here are familiar with from their family members, because when you read it, you say on the one level, uh, it's a story that many people encountered. On the other hand, it's, it's the reason these folks are called uh, the greatest generation, uh, because, uh, uh, so to speak, ordinary people are called upon to do extraordinary things. Uh, and what I'd like to do, I know we're going to go to question, what I'd like to do is read a few uh, uh, excerpts from the book, just to give you some of the flavor, and, uh, and then we can, we can go to questions. Is that right, Carl? Good. Uh, so let me do this. Look, the backbone of the book, I should say, too, happened to be a group of letters that Carl Lavin wrote his mother. And we were talking at dinner about the advent of email and how does that change things for historians. Well, at least what we, what we were able to find is a few hundred letters 
uh, and we and the ones from peacetime or before he goes overseas aren't really censored, so they're more revealing. When he goes overseas, there's censorship. The letters aren't as good, but there's conventional history sources and there's oral history and so forth that helped us uh, understand what took place. So let me first read you a letter from basic training. This is actually 1943 in uh, Waco, Texas. Dear folks, here's what we did yesterday. Got up at 0500, 5 a.m. to you, which was not too unusual since we've been doing it every single day. Reveille at 5.15 to 5.25, chow at 5.30 to 5.50, then try to get washed, make your bed, clean out your barracks, prepare for inspection, put on your leggings, fill your canteen, the water is no good here and has to be medicated, and police the area in about 45 minutes. Then we march off to the training area with pack and guns, either a 1917 model Enfield or a Thompson submachine gun. From 0700 to 1100, we have classes of 50 minutes each, separated by a two-minute wind sprint and eight-minute rest period. The classes are on first aid and gas, mostly so far, but we'll be having many more different ones. We just started motor maintenance and driving, and we've also had military courtesy, the Articles of War. I can be put up for life for not shining my shoes, AW94, Conduct on Becoming a Soldier, and map reading. Then there's an hour of drill and formation exercising. From 1200 to 1330, we eat and have a rest period, most of which is taken up waiting in line to get some food, waiting in line to get seconds, and waiting in line to wash your mess gear. To 1730, we have some more classes sometimes. Usually, the last hour is spent in doing something a little more exerting. Like yesterday, we had a hike. I believe I wrote before saying how hard it was marching three miles and 50 minutes with a pack in 85 degree heat. Well, yesterday we marched five miles in 45 minutes with a pack and rifle in 90 degree heat. These marches are really the only thing that I don't like about the Army. And I have a violent hatred of them. They are nothing but torture from the first step to the last, and there is no deeper discouragement than to have your leg muscles painting your shoulders rub sore and come to some rough or sandy ground and realize you still have four more miles to go, but can do absolutely nothing but continue to march and march at top speed. Then, toward the end, your eyes start to smart from the sweat washing through them, and you hope you won't stumble because you're sure you won't be able to start up again. But the funny thing is, once you're back and you put down your pack and gun, the relief takes all the tiredness away, and you don't throw yourself down on the bunk as you so ardently desired on the hike. You lay down for two or three minutes, drink a quart and a half of water, usually, and start joking about the hike. So my friends, I contend nothing has changed. I contend nothing has changed. And my guess is if we go back in time to World War I basic training, we'd have the same letter to the same mom and dad saying, you know, things are kind of okay, he's proud that he's keeping up, he's proud that he's with it, but he's really a little bit unhappy that they are pushing him very hard. And don't forget, he's a northern boy, Canton, Ohio is up 100 miles south of the Canadian border, and he's down in Waco, Texas in this heat, so he's not happy about that. But, but he's proud, he's proud of what he's doing, he's proud of keeping up with everybody and proud of performing. Uh, that, that initial kind of robust attitude changes a bit when you get into combat. Uh, let me uh, see if I find this. But to put this in context, uh, Carl's company is half strength when he's sent in. You know, I think companies, World War II companies, close to 150. They're never really at full strength at this point. He's out of half strength. Within 30 days, he's at in the top half of seniority in his company because of casualties. So it's a very high attrition rate. And when I was going through the archives, these are the Library of Congress archives, not, not my work here today, uh, the casualty rate for the company is over 100%. It's not quite 200%, but it's like over 150%. And I had to ask the archivist, how, you know, arithmetically, how can you have casualty rates that's over 100%? And she said, well, this means that 
people were killed or became casualties and their replacements were killed and their replacements are killed too. So you end up with a casualty number higher than the population of the company because you're just, you're just grinding through your people. So here's a discussion of uh, a town in Germany. Soldiers are required to inspect every room and every building in a town. You go through houses, office building, factories, you're looking for ammunition, for weapons. Usually two or three guys go in together because it's a little bit of a leery feeling kicking in doors. And if somebody did want to shoot you, they're in a pretty good position to do that. In one particular town, Carl and two other guys had just finished going through a house on the outskirts of town. And as they walk out the back door, they hear gunfire. And Carl sees two other GIs about 10 yards away, and they're taking aim at a group of about four German soldiers who are running across an open field about a quarter of a mile away. Now, this was a very good job for a barman because he has a high rate of fire, so he can just get up to the line of fire and assist the two riflemen. And he's moving to get up to that line of fire, and he hears his sergeant's voice say, Lavin, Lavin. But he looks around, he doesn't see his sergeant. He says, up here, up here. And Carl looks up behind him, and from the house next to the one that he had just exited, there's a hand waving through barred windows. The sergeant says, come on up here. You get a perfect shot from up here. Carl says, well, the Germans are getting away. The sergeant says, I know. No, but you get a perfect shot. Come on, hurry. Bring your, bring your bar. Get up here. Carl immediately sees this to be a bad command because of the amount of time it would take him to run to the back of the house, find the hallway, locate the stairs, scramble up them. By that time, the Germans are going to be in the woods, and it would have just taken a few seconds to move up that line of fire and assist the riflemen who are already shooting. But he doesn't have a choice. He runs to the back of the house. He gets upstairs. He sees the sergeant firing through the barred windows in what turned out to be a bathroom window. And just as Carl steps into the bathroom to assist the sergeant, the sergeant takes a bullet in his elbow staggers back. He falls about halfway back to Carl. Carl catches him as best he can, eases him to the floor. Now he's trying to take care of the sergeant's safety. He drags him into the hallway to a half-sitting position, get him out of the line of fire, take a look at him. As soon as you look at him, you say, this isn't a good situation. He's got an artery hit because you can count the pulse by looking at the surge of blood. Uh, Johnson says, never mind me. Get the, by the way, I don't use proper names for the most part in the book, but it was Johnson. But, uh, but I don't, you know, not, not trying to criticize this fellow, just trying to report history. Uh, uh, Johnson says, well, never mind me, get the Jerry's. Again, it, Carl does not think that's a wise command, but he crawls back into the bathroom. The window in the bathroom is a few feet off the floor so Carl can get beneath it and bob his head up and down to try to see what's going on. And what he sees when he bobs up really chills him because it's GIs shooting through the window. He, he bobs his head up one more time just for confirmation's sake, and he feels a million bee stings on his face because a bullet hits one of the crossbars right in front of his face. So he's peppered with iron shards and rust, uh, but he's not injured. Uh, but it is a heart-stopping moment where the bullet impacts a few inches from him. Nonetheless, he has confirmation. It's, uh, it's GIs, it's not hostile fire. He goes back to Johnson. Those are our guys. They aren't Germans. They thought you were Jerry. Now, Johnson gives it a moment of thought and says, well, get Smitty. Get Smitty. Smitty is the squad medic. Smitty always told the squad, don't yell medic. Make sure you yell Smitty. I don't want to waste my time helping somebody else. All right, so Carl runs downstairs to get, get Smitty, but he stops at the front door because the GIs are out there shooting in. So he drops his bar, he throws down his pack, throws down his ammo, and bolts from the door, hoping that they'll recognize him, not shoot him. And it works. But they're all yelling at him. Hey, laughing, get down. Jerry's in there. Carl says back, that wasn't Jerry. That was Johnson and me inside. Are you crazy? You and Johnson were shooting us? No, Johnson was shooting over your head. Hey, Johnson's hurt. Get Smitty. Get Smitty. Johnson's hurt. Everybody starts yelling to get Smitty. Smitty decides the fastest way to get to the scene is to jump a fence. 
Unfortunately, Smitty's foot caught a rail, and he went sailing with his medical equipment thrown loose through the air of the morphine cyrets, the sulfamilamide, the gauze bandages, the compresses, the surgical tape, the tincture of methylate, aspirin, bismuth, paragoric, sodium amytal, and the tags for logging morphine injections. The GIs helped Smitty pick up his gear. Come on, Johnson's hurt. Stop fooling around. That's the end of one vignette in infantry. Let me, uh, let me read one more, then we can go to questions, Carl. Is that good? Give you another, another episode. Uh, can find this. The captain of the company calls a meeting to tell the GIs that he had volunteered them for a mission. The company's not at full strength. There were fewer than 100 men, and the mission is to take the village of Gartau from resisting German soldiers who had successfully repelled a different American company the previous day. The captain proudly told the GIs there'd been a regimental meeting at which a colonel had asked for volunteers. The captain said, I'm so proud of you guys. But the GIs weren't happy. Uh, there was widespread view that at this point in the war, uh, what was important was to marshal your forces and conserve your manpower. But the captain didn't agree with that logic. The order came down, and the next day, Carl and the company were sent to take the village about a mile away from their current position. The idea was a rapid frontal assault without infantry support would allow the infantry to surprise the village defenders. Carl's company made a stealthy running attack across an open field. Carl's carrying a heavier load than most of the GIs, he's, so he's lagging the back, but he's keeping up with the group. Near the village, there's a barbed wire fence, which is affixed to metal poles. The men use the poles to leap over the wire. Carl gets to the fence and puts his bar on the other side. He begins to climb over, but the moment he puts down his weapon, firefight breaks loose. The Germans had been watching the advance all along. They'd strung the fence there to range their weapons. So everything was zeroed in on the fence. Mortar fire, machine gun fire, rifle fire on the fence. So enormous number of casualties. Carl hits the ground, but he's separated from his rifle. And worse, he's of the view that the Germans know what a bar looks like and they can aim fire at him. Uh, so he's pancaked on the ground. Within a minute or two, though, the, the main uh, force of the fire moves to one side and Carl's able to leap the fence. And there are other GIs, too, run for a few yards, hit the ground, run for a few yards, hit the ground. They're able to reach a drainage ditch, which is half full of water, but he's able to keep his head above water uh, and take in what's going on. The drainage ditch leads into the town. So the GIs make their way through the ditch into town. And when they get into town, a sergeant's there and says, uh, points to a sort of a barn-like structure and says, Carl, see if you can get in there and fire into firing position. So Carl shoots off the lock. The structure gets into the second floor where there's a sort of an office, and he is able to uh, get some kind of view down on the field of fire. Uh, now, by the way, uh, we know the rest of this. It's funny, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing research for this book, and I'm talking to different uh, libraries and archives of collections of veterans' memoirs, and, and I'm finding various, like I did today, find various people who are in his company or in his battalion and what they've read, read or said. So it's a very useful exercise. So there's an oral history product, uh, project at uh, Florida State University. And I wrote to them and said, do you have any uh, oral history from the 84th Division or 335th Battalion or any of that, uh, 335th Regiment, I say, sorry, and, or any of that nature? Can you talk to me about what you have uh, that might be useful for this project? And the archivist wrote back and said, yeah, we've got an interview with your dad from 20 years ago. So I said, well, I didn't know he gave it and uh, didn't know it was there, but please, if you can share it, please share it. So, so we go to this, uh, this first-person 
uh, interview. I was at the second story window. I saw a German trying to run across an open field, running in the direction of where the main action was. I took a quick shot at him while he's running to try to slow him down, and it works because he hits the ground on a plain open field. Well, I thought, that was pretty dumb. He's just lying there. He doesn't move. Well, I tried to decide what to do. He's mine. I could have him I wanted. I decided I would kill him. He's not surrendering. I, di I didn't want to kill him. Do I really want to take a human life? After having shot at him, he's just lying there? Well, I decided this is a hell of a time to become a conscientious objector. <laughs> I decided, yeah, I, I would kill him. I didn't have to wonder anymore what it was like to kill someone. I just shot him. He never moved. I've had a queasy feeling about it ever since. It's the only absolute time I positively knew I killed someone because we had a patrol going out the next day. We went right by the guy I killed. He never moved a muscle. Head down, I picked up his head, and forgive me, uh, but I felt his brains and gore. Uh, what it really meant, the position of the head and the position of the body, was my first quick shot where I tried to slow him down. Actually, it hit him in the head. I knew it had to have been my first shot because he never moved when he hit the ground. So all the time I was trying to decide whether I should take his life or not, in fact, I'd already taken his life. This has struck with me very strongly ever since. And this was Carl's final moment of combat, bloody and pointless, stupid Germans for not surrendering, stupid captain for ordering the assault. So that's the, uh, that's the final, but it goes on to talk about occupation, VE Day, and other interesting stories that happen, but those are just some glimpses of combat, some glimpses of basic training and things that happen. But uh, be delighted, be delighted, if we are opening it up now, Carl, to questions, and Carl's got the mic. And, uh, Right, ladies and gentlemen, as you uh, remember from before, uh, please raise your hand if you've got a question uh, or a comment, and we will come around with the uh, microphone to you. So who's going to get us started this evening? Any hands? Any, oh, there we go. Waiting to see if anybody else had one. Uh, how are you doing, sir? Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to read the book. Oh, thank you. Uh, if I may, uh, your dad, Carl... As I was reading the book, I found uh, so many similarities uh, with my own military career. I've been in for 24 years. I was in the first Gulf War, uh, was in Iraq during the surge for 15 months, and then I did a tour in uh, Afghanistan for 12 months. Thank you for your service. Thank you. It's an honor, sir. Uh, part of the family heritage, if you will. Uh, Great-grandfathers all the way forward, including my sister. Um, some of the things that Carl points out in there about uh, the mentality of hurry up and wait... I couldn't help but laugh. Um, the family values of reading these letters are just amazing to me. Uh, looking at even my own kids uh, that are grown, some of the things that are going on today, and looking back at what uh, he went through as a child through the Great Depression, and then his own family uh, really stood out to me. Uh, what also stood out to me was um, some of the unknowns and some of the humanity portions of it. Uh, I really enjoyed this as, as a, just an armchair historian. I don't have any degrees or anything, but I, I read and eat and devour whatever I can. Um, this brought a real personal and human element. Uh, I felt like I was there with Carl the entire time. Um, and I just wanted to thank you for not only sharing your father's personal story, um, but doing all of the extras to put it in a historical context as well. Uh, for me, um, identifying with some of the things that Carl did, I brought home some war trophies. Um, I did not get to speak in depth with my grandfather, who was my absolute hero. Mm. Uh, excuse me. And um, he didn't tell a lot of his World War II stories. Uh, my father didn't share his Vietnam stuff at all. Yeah. Uh, and they passed away, and I regret uh, not being able to, to talk to them. So listening to your own father's uh, words uh, helped me uh, do that. And in there, Carl was talking about how he brought home uh, some German Reichmark. Uh, I brought home a bayonet, uh, AK-47 bayonet. Uh, was there anything particular that Carl brought home that uh, stood out to you? And then in your travels, anything that you went uh, to the places that, that he fought at and uh, that stood out to you? Yeah. Uh, thanks. By the way, there's, that's a real interesting set of comments, and I uh, thank you. Very kind of you. Very great of you to make those comments. I've got to bring you to every speech I give to give those kind of remarks. But, you know, it's interesting, though, because you comment about the 
the sort of silence, uh, I think very natural silence. This whole book was sort of an accident because that's where my dad was too. My dad uh, never talked about service in the war and never wanted to. Uh, and uh, in fact, he would leave the room. This is you know a generation where there's one TV set in the, fam in the family where that's it. He would leave the room if a World War II movie came on, if a TV show came on, he, he just didn't want to be part of it. And uh, I got prompted because there were two or three events that took place about 10 years ago, the same year, uh, Band of Brothers uh, and uh, uh, Steven Spielberg's HBO series, which is just all focused on the GI. That was the history of the foot soldier. It was not great. You know, we learned history in high school, college, you know, it's great men, great decisions and so forth. Good, we should know that. But you know, who's doing the work? And so it was a really interesting depiction of what, what are the ground soldiers doing? What are they talking about? What motivates them? Very similarly, Saving Private Ryan came out the same year. And I realized, you know, my dad's experience could not have been that different from those folks. Maybe no heroics, but he ate the same food and fought the same battle. And I said to him, uh, look, I just, for my own well-being, uh, just I don't even know what unit you served in. I don't know what your MOS was. I, I know nothing about where you trained. I know nothing. Can you just walk me through dates and times and service? And I ended up with about a 30-page memo that was, you know, sort of for family consumption. It wasn't uh, worth circulating beyond that, but at least so you know where your grandfather, your uncle served, so forth. But then we found these letters, and the letters were literally in the furnace room. He had not seen them, so he wrote letters to his mom. She saves them. She, he's got only one sibling, a brother who's in the Navy in the Pacific. So clearly, I, and by the way, this is typical. I mean, this is America's, the whole country's at war. But, but you can imagine a mom at home with two kids, both of them in combat. I mean, you're going to save every letter. You're going to save everything they do. And, you know, it's just you've got to spend three or four years just clenching your heart. And... Uh, they come home and say, here, here are the letters you wrote, and he throws them in the furnace room. And it's literally decades later, they're found, after this memo's written, they said, now I can intersplice the, intersplice the letters with what he told me, and I can go back and re-interview him. Who are these letters? You're writing these things. Can you tell me about them? And then I can start doing field research. I can go here. I can go to the Library of Congress. I can go to these different veterans history projects and really start putting something together. So it was a bit of a journey. But he, uh, he had no particular interest in uh, defining his life by his, by his service, and he thought, in a way, it was sort of false bravado or trying, you know, the saying is, the real heroes didn't come home. There's a quote here uh, from, a, from a colleague, Howard Ruppel, who says, I didn't want to rehash, refight, relive, or recreate images or relive memories in a social atmosphere. I sought no recognition or special attention. I didn't want to be thought of as a hero. I didn't want my past life to interfere with my future life. I wanted to get on with living in the manner I chose. So that was very much my dad's view. That's that, that whole generation just said, look, we did this not so we would wallow in it or define our life. We did this precisely so we could leave it behind and raise a family, just go have a normal a kid and make sure our kids aren't necessarily exposed to violence. So he did. He brought home uh, a few odds and ends. He brought home a, a, a Nazi brassard, a swastika uh, armband, and I asked about that. Uh, it was sort of a box of stuff, and he said, "Yeah, they're on the Elbe, and the Americans get to the Elbe before the Russians do. But the Elbe is the demarcation. That's where the two allies are going to stop. So all of the German forces on the Russian side, they know." They know they're just going to get a much better deal from the Americans than from the Russians. And so you literally have guys swimming and rowing across that L. And he just took it off a guy who came out of the boat. He brought back a Luger, but his wife, my mom, said, as soon as the kids are born, you got to get rid of that gun. I do not want, you know, a pistol in the house. So he did. And that was about it. That was about it. So there's not a room full of, you know, Nazi daggers or crazy stuff and so forth. They used, I, he's got, I think, a reference there. He uses a pistol. There's, there, you know, you go to the rear echelon with a, with a Luger and you can get something for it, right? So you can you use it to barter through your chain and stuff. So, uh, um, so there, it's a currency. But he didn't, uh, he didn't have anything but some, some knickknacks, some photographs, and, and the letters. All right, did I see a, a hand go up over here? 
All right, who can we do? Who can we go with next? All right, over here on the side. The sergeant you were talking about got shot in the elbow. Did he survive or what happened to him? Uh, he did survive. We just know that from the ca he's not on the casualty list. He's not on the casualty list. So he gets hit in the arm and the elbow, but it, you know, at least at least the system works to the extent that he can be evacuated and bandaged up and so forth. So, uh, but he doesn't. I, I can't tell you more about that. And I wanted. I mean, again, the point of the book is not to criticize any. There, look, there there are some terrible incidents in this book, but we're not trying to single anybody out for criticism. We're just trying to tell a story. So in the book, it's just Sergeant J. But now you guys know the secret. So, <laughs> so, but there's a you know there's another friendly fire incident. There's, listen, this is a. Back to your story, what I, you know, I'm of that generation of the 1960s was sort of the peak of, uh, of the post-war of the baby boomers uh, and the sort of romantic history of the war before we got to the Tom Hanks and Steve Spielberg say, you know what, this is pretty nasty business. I mean, it's, uh, you can be very proud of what the GIs do, but boy, it is tough business. But, you know, but in the romantic era from the 1950s, 1960s, everybody's a hero. You know, and every, every American is a hero and every German is dastardly and sinister and cowardly and we, you know, we win through sort of moral force. Uh, and that's what my dad said, I'm not going in that room. But because there's one incident where he's deserted under fire. And uh, I bring that up because that helped prompt, he's got the scrapbook uh, with a few photos in it. And I said, I know, I know how this is supposed to work because I, I watch combat, I watch the gallant man, and I know what this is supposed to be, his unit is going to have names that are endearing names. They're either going to be geographical names like Tex or Brooklyn, or they're going to be character attributes like Romeo or Einstein. And that's every single war show from the 1960s has got that. And the whole theme is we all sort of pull together because we're the good guys. So he's got that unit squad, and it has next to it, deserted me under fire. I said, you've got to be kidding me. This could not possibly be true. I said, well, it is true. And I said, well, I guess if there's one thing you're going to note about somebody, that's what you'd note, I guess. If you're going to remember one thing about the fellow, when he says, let's go out, you say, I, you go by yourself next time. But, uh, but I was just, just staggered by this to say, okay, there's a story behind the story. It's not the pure, it's not the 1960s Hollywood version. You've got to get to the Tom Hanks or the Steven Spurg would say, you know what? Bad things happen in combat. Even really good people can make bad decisions or bad things can happen. And guess what? Don't underestimate your enemy. He might be fighting for a bad cause, but he is a very capable person. He is trying to kill you just the same way you're trying to kill him. So that took sort of the, the last two decades to sort of get those messages through through the, our television stories. Uh, in the best tradition of good people making bad decisions, I hope that I can be forgiven if, uh, in an attempt to inject a tiny bit of humor here and I offer a respectful suggestion. Uh, when I look around the room, I see a lot of young folks who, when they hear the word bar, only think of one thing. You referred to it many times. You might want to explain to them what it is. Sure. Sure. No, thank you for that. You might not have got, but Browning automatic rifle uh, the M1 is the standard issue in World War I. The M1, uh, uh, you, you have to squeeze the trigger each time uh, you fire a bullet. With the semi-automatic, you, you squeeze the bullet uh, once, and it will find out it can be adjusted. It can be full auto or semi-auto, right? But the bar is semi-auto, so it'll fire a three-round clip. So it's a heavier gun. It'll fire more rapidly. By the way, his bar, the serial number on the side of it is M1917. It's a 1917 technology, right? But it's, it's if you need high rate of fire for certain situations, you need a you need a bar. Interestingly, the main uh, the main German rifle, the main German assault rifle, uh, you had to actually cock. You had to actually pull back and chamber around each time, right? So they so US M1 technology is ahead of the German technology. A little bit surprising. We have one right back here. I just want to tag on to the idea of why people didn't talk about it. My dad came to live with me um, in the early 90s, and when it came to be the 50th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge, a man who owned the Sopitel French rent, uh, 
hotel chain, uh, invited World War II veterans from the area to come to a dinner. And so I asked my father, and he was very hesitant, and then he said, all right. So we went to this lovely hotel in Washington, D.C., and the man put on a beautiful evening for these men. There must have been 100. And he showed a movie which, which, which said, he said, last time you were in my village, this is what it looked like. And I want to show you what it looks like today. And then he gave a beautiful speech. And at the end, he said, what you did for our village made such an impact on the lives of our people. And I just wanted to say thank you. And as we were walking out, I said to my dad, well, are you glad we came? And he said to me, it is the first time anyone ever said thank you. That's a very moving story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I, and let me just make one point. I mentioned before about the brutality of war and, and why it deteriorated. But there's an interesting sort of geopolitical phenomenon that's unfolding during the Battle of the Bulge. The history of Nazi Germany's expansion and contraction was kind of like Imperial Japan, right? They're on the front foot for the first few years. They've got the advantages and they're expanding. And then they're beaten back because their adversaries do have more material and more manpower. And so it's an expansion and contraction, right? It's we look at the maps, you can follow it day by day. The only place on the Western Front where there was any deviance from that is the Battle of the Bulge, where you'd say, wait, there was expansion, contraction, and then territories retaken by the Nazis. You say, well, that's interesting, but why is that significant? It's significant because you had liberated towns in Belgium and Luxembourg and France, that whole border that was the, the Nazis took. These had been liberated towns, and we know what happens when they're liberated. The folks come out of hiding. There's a whole underground in these communities, right? There's the, the postmasters working for the Allies, the school principal smuggling airmen out. Other people are doing things. So these are, this is occupied territory. Nobody's pro-German, right? I mean, a very small group are actually collaborators. Most of these folks are proud Belgian, proud Frenchmen, and they're working with the Allies. So there's celebration and joy when they're liberated. One, two, three months later, it's recaptured. Well, the Gestapo is a death squad. They know the address. They've got intelligence. The truck pulls up at night to the postmaster's house. The guy comes down, he's shot. Truck pulls up at night to the high school principal's house. He's shot. So all these guys who had said, I'm proud of having worked with the Allies, are, are murdered for their work, right? So it's, it has enormous emotional cachet when you said, we then went that extra distance and liberated you again. Uh, there's enormous resonance, I think, in Belgium for that extra work that the, that the GIs did. So. I was interested to hear that your dad was a BAR, or what do you call it, a bar? A BAR, bar, bar man, yeah. I'm surprised that, I thought that was a, a position that not too many people wanted because that BAR was a target and not too many lasted long. Uh, he didn't want it, <laughs> said he was given it. And, uh, and in fact, one of, the, one of the sort of permanent themes of this is, is there any way I can get out of the infantry? And there's no, and the answer is no. The answer is no, you can't get out of the infantry. And he said, it's you know, just a bloody, bloody business. Uh, and I think you're right. I read one place that the German snipers are supposed to first kill the, uh, kill the second lieutenant, then they're supposed to kill the radio man, then they're supposed to kill the barman. That's what the German snipers, but they know. Then they're given the profiles, and they said, this is who you're supposed to kill from you know, 200 yards away or whatever. So they knew, they knew that this was uh, who you're supposed to kill. Yeah, so it's a, it's a dangerous business. It's a, it's a mess of a business. But, you know, the need... The need is for infantry. This is, in fact, Carl Lavin, is, he, get, he wins the lottery at one point in his Army career. When he gets through basic training, there's a program called ASTP, Advanced Specialized Training Program, and allows people to place into it to go to college. So the Army, because they've stripped out so many from college, the Army says, look, we're going to run a college program. And if you place into it, so he's sent to Queens College in New York. But it's only for about six months as the North Africa campaign unfolds, political support for, you know, why, you know we can't have these guys in college while people are getting shot, right? And, and then there's just manpower needs. So all these guys are stripped out of the ASTB program has all but ended. They keep it open for uh, medical professions. So if you're in that track, you're okay. But anything else, you're thrown back into regular infantry. So he, because his first MOS when he gets out of basic is tank destroyer. 
So he's assigned as a tank destroyer, and then he goes to ASTP, and then when he comes out, he said you're, you're in the, he was in the 69th Division in Shelby, uh, Camp Shelby, Mississippi, and that's when he said you're a barman, right? And I, you know, it's, it's clearly the last guy in the room, right? The guy's got no seniority, new to the unit, we got a good idea for you. So yeah, so that's, uh, that's how it works. So, so it still works that way. We have one right here. Well, sir, thank you for the presentation. I appreciate what you've done there. I was—I had the honor of well being born during the war, and both my father, both my grandfathers, and my father and an uncle were overseas fighting at the time. So I've had a chance to go use the facilities here to research and go mm. and track my father and grandfather through uh, through Europe. Uh, I became a charter member of the World War II Memorial Association. Now, right. you know, Tom Hanks and. Bob Dole did a bit more than I did to, to raise the funds there, but I was involved and I went to the dedication and uh, was in, met some of the guys from my grandfather's unit, was invited to a reunion, and I've been to four of them now. Well, there were a couple hundred at the first one, there were 12 at the last reunion uh -huh. a couple years ago. But one question I ask almost all of them, we go on a bus somewhere and I sit with 12 different guys, is what did, how did that experience affect the rest of your life? So I talked to a guy who was a medic from Des Moines, and he went to college and then med school and been a doctor for 40 years, and talked to a guy who was a mechanic, and he went to trade school and, and got an education, and the GI Bill is famous for having uh, affected a whole generation after that. So they tell the stories of, I don't ask them so much about like, what you did during yeah. the war, but what's happened since yeah. the, this greatest generation that broke off. Yeah. A lot of us used that term way before Brokaw wrote a book, but still a great term. So how did that experience influence the rest of your father's uh, life? I, I can tell you, why, look, that's a little bit of conjecture because you don't, you can't compare it uh, uh, to anything, but, but I can tell you one thing that comes through very uh, clearly in this book, it, it's, it's that, especially that first year or so in peacetime army, basic training and so forth, it's a, uh, it's a purposefulness and the Army is extremely good at giving you a ladder that you can perform on. If you do certain things, certain things will happen to you. And there's opportunities, there's training, there's exposure. And he is really, you can tell he's a, uh, you know, basically a C student in high school, right? He's basically an indifferent student is the polite word. But he just doesn't. Well, there's one note, there's one note right around Pearl Harbor, right? That's at the end of 41, where he says, See, Mom, you always, you know, were telling me I had to study hard and, and that I wasn't good about grades, and, and here you are, because I'm away at college now for a semester, and I'm getting straight A's. So, you know, so he's really proud that he's sort of performing. But, but what that really told me was maturity, that he's finally at a point where he says, you know, it might be actually worth performing. You might actually think about doing a good job. It might be consequential. If you but the Army is, that's 100% Army culture. Performance counts. And if you can perform, something good might happen to you. If you can't perform, you are cutting off career, opportunities, interesting things. You know, you're just going to have a, a worse time in the Army if you don't perform. So he is really captivated by this, and there's clearly some JOs, his initial guys in training. So these guys are really impressive guys. These guys, because you can imagine, they're first... The first people are roughly peers, right? They can't be much older than he is, but they're really switched on people, whoever these folks were, are very capable folks that he's saying, these guys really know what they're doing, they're talking about stuff, and they're, and they're part of this enormous national drama of World War II. So he, he takes, I think, out of that first year two military a sense of purpose and a sense of drive to say, you know, get thine act together and think about how well you're going to do in life. And you don't, you don't want to be the, the, the pleasant underachiever in life. You want to be the pleasant achiever in life. So that, that was a core Army message that I think really made a difference to him. We have one right over here. Um, I had some rather nebulous anecdotes from an uncle that apparently was pretty screwed up uh, as far as uh, atrocities. Mm. Uh, so that's something that we don't hear about from our side. Mm. Uh, do you have any evidence or insights into uh, American atrocities? Yeah, there were uh, violations of conduct, no doubt. And I ended up, in terms of uh, tertiary sources, I ended up reading about 30 published 
histories, which, you know, is just a good, you know, we're just trying to get into it. The best, uh, and I have to say I only read the third volume of the trilogy, the best was Rick Atkinson's World War II trilogy. He got the Pulitzer Prize for it. And he, he is a, he is a strong narrator. He's a great storyteller. So, uh, but boy, you read that and it is brutal. There is a lot of bad news in that situation. Uh, he talks about a Scottish, Scottish officer's uh, notebook of daily events and it says the abbreviation is NPT, no prisoners taken, right? I mean, there, you know, you're saying this is the, this is such a standardized activity, there's a military abbreviation for it. I can tell you, and what I'm reading today, this wasn't as brutal, but I was reading material today, and they said, you know, the Americans will go through a house and ask the folks in the house, is there any contraband? And if they find it, they will rough up the folks in that house. They'll slap them around, right? They will let them know they're not behaving well. The Brits do it differently. If they ask people their, con their weapons in this house or contraband in this house, and they lie about it, they find it, they'll get everybody out of the house, they will douse that house in gasoline, and they will burn it. Right? I mean, that's, that's not killing a prisoner, but that's pretty brutal stuff. That cannot be in any accepted law of conduct for war. Right? So it's a, it is a rough business. It is a rough business, and a combination of fatigue and desperation just accelerates that. So it's, uh, it's no good. There is one particular incident uh, in the Battle of the Bulge that I write about where a, a group of four German prisoners are killed by, by the captives. And, and, that, and the lieutenant's view is, we don't have the manpower to guard prisoners. And I can tell you, week by week, I don't give, give away the whole book, but week by week, you can see what's happening in the Battle of the Bulge. Carl's put in his replacement Christmas Day the next week they're getting replacements, but the replacements aren't keeping up with casualties. The week after that, there's no replacements. Then food and ammunition is interrupted. So you're not getting replacements, you're not getting food, you're not getting ammunition, and you know, in wartime, you're not being told, well, it's you know, it's gonna be it's so here you are, and you've got four German soldiers. And you've got to now devote a third of your unit strength to providing 24-hour guard to these guys, and they're eating your food, so you can't do anything? So you, are you going to jeopardize your unit by keeping them alive? Or are you going to violate your oath, violate Article of War by killing a prisoner? Right? I mean, it's a tough, tough question. Well, the lieutenant says, I mean, it's in the book, but they get, they get killed. They get, these guys, unfortunately, uh, got captured at the wrong time. So... So it's a, it's a, it's a rough business. Uh, I I just like to add a comment about you said a bold action rifle that the, the Vermont, the German army used. Uh, when I read uh, Albert Speer's book Inside the Third Right, uh, when he was visiting the. Eastern Front, the commanders were whinging about how their problems, their lack of automatic weapons, but it seems that Hitler had decided that, you know, when he fought in World War I, they had the bold action rifle, and so to his mind, that was just fine, and so the majority of the weapons, which is really lucky for the Allies, I think, uh, you know, the Germans had some really good automatic weapons, but they didn't have them in, you know, only in small numbers, and the, the guy, Commanders on the Eastern Front were saying they had to rely on uh, automatic weapons that they had uh, taken from the Soviets, but it was Hitler's decision that yeah. that the bold action was sufficient. <laughs> and yeah. anyway, that, that's just one. I know you mentioned that's, that. That's, that's, a, that's a it's a it's entirely believable. It's just such a crazy conclusion. There's been other discussions about uh, uh, you know. Uh, Another interesting book, I didn't, it's not directly related to this story, but The Arms of Krupp, where it talks about German engineering and German manufacturing and the armaments industry. You know, and these, these are world, famous world leaders. But they said they had this incredible fixation with engineering and grandiosity that really ill-served them. So you had to say, it's something like if you're, if you're, if you're the, the final panzers, the king panzers, the final ones they roll out, which are the best tanks around, they say if your transmission brakes on a panzer, it has to be taken out and shipped by railroad back to a repair depot. And, you know, a, a, a Sherman tank is a lighter tank and an inferior tank, but you can fix it. 
you can actually pull out a toolbox and fix the transmission so you can keep the thing going. So they had this, you know, odd by the, so it's a better piece of weaponry, but it's just not practical on the battlefield. So they just had some sort of this bias towards over-engineered solutions, whereas, you know, the American bias is, look, you know, we've got Henry Ford on our side. Let's just make this stuff, and we're going to win. If we just keep cranking out enough Sherman tanks, we'll beat these guys. It's a light. It's a more lightly armored vehicle. Um, yes, that's right. If you look at the design, you wince. You just say, "Who invented this, man? This is just bad." Yeah. If you if you look at it, you'll say, I, "I don't put me in one of those." And and indeed, you'll read it. You'll read encounters where the tankers know this. They know they're in a tough, you know. And so when you, you know, as soon as someone says to them, "By the way, there's problems," you know, the, these guys pull back. I mean, these guys are not. They can't lead on anything because they're. If they're in a direct combat, they're going to get killed. So they can flank and they can do certain things, but they got to be very, very careful about where they are because they have, the, have inferior uh, equipment. Yeah, that's right. I think early, early versions. I think early versions weren't diesel, for one thing. I don't think, and uh, only, only, only two years into make diesel. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, I can believe it. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.